Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, beautiful friends. Shavua Tov. I hope all of you who engaged with Shavuot had a meaningful Shavuot. And I am very excited to start with you kindness class number eight on um, the mitzvah of supporting the kala, the chatan, on supporting brides and, gro- brides and grooms. And before we jump into the content there, I would love to start with a poll to see, to get our juices flowing, so to speak, um, and see what we're thinking about and what's resonating on this issue. So how do I feel about weddings? Number one, I live for weddings. They're so fun and holy and I get so emotional. <laughs> Option two, I like weddings if the person, um, if I love the person getting married, Option three, I prefer not to go to weddings so much. Option four, I hate weddings. So many are superficial, a waste of time, and gifts are expensive. Okay, friends, let's see where you fall out here on how you think about weddings. Let's bracket our own weddings if we have had one and just think about the weddings of others. Okay, Alex, let's see our results here. Oh, 38% say, I live for weddings. They're so fun, holy, and I get emotional. 50% said, I like weddings if I love the person getting married. No one here says, I prefer not to go to weddings so much. Nobody's just parav on the issue. And then we've got 13% who say, I hate weddings. They're superficial, waste of time, and cost too much money. Okay, very interesting. Thank you for uh, (laughs) for sharing. And uh, (laughs) um, it's always fun to hear what people are thinking. So I want to give one disclaimer before we jump in, which is that some of the language I'll use for weddings um, may be heteronormative, as would be expected uh. traditionally. Um, but I just want to say that um, that everything shared here is intended to apply um, to same-sex relationships as well. And we will dive into that issue as we go as well. So friends, here we go. Question. Question. Yes, please, Rev. Rev Dove. When you say hetero, and, I, and that it means to be inclusive, one of the things I've never figured out is in the case of same sex, do they, conti- do they consider themselves both kala or both chatan or either or? I've never really gotten that straight. Great, great. Thank you for Sorry. sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. My experience has been that when there's a non-binary couple, uh, that then there's some interesting complexities there. Um, And But generally, if two lesbians were getting married, they'd both call themselves kalot, they'd be brides. If two uh, men were marrying, they'd both consider themselves grooms. I've never met a non-binary person um, call themselves the opposite um, of Khatan uh, Rakala than than their gender identity, but that's a, that's a, that's an and I have heard some folks. One of the interesting conversations around same sex marriages is how closely linked they want it to be to the traditional model. Do they want language like Khatan Rakala at all, or do they want to use more language, different language? In my circles, they generally want to get as tr- close to the traditional framework as possible. Um, and maintain that that language. But thank you for kicking us off with that. We will return to that conversation um, as we as we as, as we move forward. So, friends, to start with the foundation here, there is a great mitzvah of simchat chatan v'kala, bringing joy to the bride and groom. 
There are many different ways to achieve this goal, of course. Some may support them financially. Some may give gifts. Others will sing or dance or say uplifting words at the wedding. One sage in the Talmud, Rav Shmuel ben Rav Yitzchak, I don't think he looked like that, but um, it's fun to imagine that he could look like this um, stockbroker, <laughs> um, would juggle um, myrtle twigs before the bride. Um, <laughs> uh, a story is told of a modern Musar teacher. This is told in, in the work Sparks of Musar. At weddings, Rav Itzalef was the life of the party. He danced on tabletops, sang and composed rhymes in order to fulfill the mitzvah of making the chatan v'kala happy. Even at the Jerusalem chuppah, the traditional Jewish canopy ceremony of Rav Naftali of Amsterdam and his second wife, who were both in their 70s, Rav Itzala did the same thing. When asked whether so much rejoicing was called for on this occasion, he answered, in the halacha of rejoicing with a bride and groom, there is no difference whether the couple um, are 20 or 70. Some might think that for a second wedding or for an older wedding, that it would be a more tame, but he said the mitzvah applies to all the same. Based on the Talmud, our morning liturgy includes hachnasat kala, providing for a bride, as one of the acts one will benefit from in this world and in the world to come. The rabbi suggests that one is being godlike when they attend a wedding and strive to bring joy to the couple. Why is this godlike? The rabbis explain that at the first wedding between Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, there was no one else but God to celebrate. So too, we should emulate the divine and rejoice with this couple. It might seem like this is only a positive mitzvah, a mitzvah to assay, something we should do. One should support brides and grooms at their time of celebration. But the Chafetz Chaim touches a power, teaches a powerful lesson about how there may be a negative mitzvah here as well, a mitzvah lo ta'aseh. He writes, rejoicing in your neighbor's joy. Jewish sources cite helping a bride and groom as an example of how to fulfill this commandment. So seriously does Jewish law take this responsibility that the Chafetz Chaim's son record that his father told him, told them that someone who attends a wedding and makes no effort to bring joy to the newly married couple, for, for example, through singing or dancing and speaking war, warm words to them, is guilty of a form of stealing. The family makes the wedding celebration, spends a great deal of money, and expects the guests to do what they can to make the bride and groom happy. Therefore, to attend a wedding feast and not try to bring joy is a transgression, he said. Very interesting. I'd never heard this idea before. I had heard the positive mitzvah that we should try to make them happy. But he says that in return for the meal, in return for the party, we have a debt. And that debt is fulfilled by actively trying to bring joy in one way or another for the bride and groom. Beit Hillel even thinks that pleasing a bride and groom is so important that we can lie to do so. If you've, if you've been learning with us for a while, you've heard me quote this idea before, but it's worth mentioning as it fits into this topic, and it's from the Gemara of Ketubot. The rabbis taught in a Brita, Brita is an extra Talmudic teaching that is not formally recorded in the Talmud. How do we dance before the bride? How do we praise the bride to the groom? Beit Shammai says, we praise and describe the bride as she is. But Beit Hillel says, in all cases, we give praise and say that the bride is pleasant and kind. Beit Shammai said to Beit Hillel, now, if she were lame or blind, do we say about her that she is beautiful and, char and a charming bride? But the Torah has said, distance yourself from falsehood. We don't lie. Beit Hillel said to Beit Shammai, according to your view, if someone made a bad purchase in the market, and he asked your opinion on the purchase, and he had no way of returning the item. Should one praise it in the purchaser's eyes or denigrate it? Of course you would say that one should praise it in his eyes. We should therefore praise even a homely, homely bride. Um, and so we see here this, um, this value of bringing joy even when it emerges through not telling the truth at a wedding. 
Another story is told of a great 20th century rabbi who lied for the sake of honoring a bride and groom. This is found in Rabbi Joseph Telushkin's work, You Shall Be Holy. Reb Shlomo Zalman Orbach assumed the responsibility for rearing an orphan who lived in his neighborhood. When the boy was dating, he spoke to Reb Shlomo Zalman about the dilemma which he was grappling with. The relationship was getting serious and the boy was short quite a bit from what her family held to be his share of the wedding expenses. He was reluctant to reveal the astronomical son they were demanding. Reb Shlomo Zalman interrupted the troubled young man to apprise him of some good news. If you are already speaking about money, he said, improvising, you should know that I have been overseeing a fund all these years on your behalf. This fund now totals $5,500. The boy could not believe his ears. Not only was this fund a windfall, but the amount of money in the account was precisely the sum he was missing. This young man had never uh, divulged to anyone, including his benevolent foster father, the figure that he was expected to provide. And the benevolent foster father never divulged the fact that until the day of this conversation, the fund was non-existent. This this speaks to me personally. Um, My my wife and I had literally zero dollars for our wedding, um, personally or from our parents. And every little gift, we had a friend who played the guitar for free. My rabbi let us use the basement of his synagogue um, for a very nominal fee, which just included the labor. We had like a bagel buffet with cream cheese. um, And we made the most modest wedding uh, possible. And every little way that someone stepped forward with, you know, help with photography or the like was like so deeply meaningful to to reduce the stress of this exciting day. So why is this all so important? For the Torah, the family is the center of the world. More than a shul, more than a school, dare I say more than a Beit Midrash, the home is the center of the world. The family is the foundation of our lives. To strengthen the Jewish people and strengthen the world, we need to strengthen the family unit. We want couples to get off on the right start. We want them to emerge with so much support and joy that they are elevated so high. Inevitably, relationships will have moments of decline, but the higher the couple's start, starting point, their decline will hopefully not go so low due to such joyful, formative experiences surrounding the wedding day, among many others to come afterward. I remember in an ultra-Orthodox yeshiva that I studied in, actually a few of them, a common saying was, if you're not going up, you're going down. Like they would say spiritually, if you're not ascending spiritually, you're declining. And so too in a relationship, it's very dangerous to be on kind of a, a steady, um, you know, on a, on, on a, what do you call it, uh, cruise control, that um, there needs to be an ascent. And yet there's an acknowledgement that every relationship will have some deterioration, will have some downfall. So we want to start a couple as high as possible so that when there is some fall, that fall is not from a low place. Furthermore, it is more important to help a couple prepare for a marriage than merely for the wedding. That's what I always say to couples I work with, that I'm going to be here for you, but I'm going to help you prepare for for the marriage more than for the wedding. For this one reason, one might consider not only supporting a chatan and kala for their wedding, but also for the shana rishona, for the first year of marriage. This is yet another reason why gift giving, whether in the form of money or or household goods from a registry, um, is of such great significance. Individual gifts taken as a whole will certainly go a long way towards accomplishing this goal. The Torah drives this point home in instructing us that the groom is exempt in the first year of marriage from going to war. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man has has taken a bride, he shall not go out with the army or be assigned to it for any purpose. He shall be exempt one year for the sake of his household to give happiness to the woman he has married. So that's an interesting halakha around around marriage and the exemption uh, from war that emerges in warfare that emerges um, in that first year. Similarly, many a Rosh Yeshiva, the rabbinical head of a Yeshiva, will instruct his newly married students that they should remain at home with their wives in the evening hours rather than spending that time in the study hall. We also celebrate a couple so fully because we know how hard it is 
for a successful match to be made. One Talmudic source explains, perhaps hyperbolically. It says in Sota, Rabba Bar Bar Chana said in the name of Rav Yochanan, and it is as difficult for God to match up a couple for marriage as it is to split the sea, to create a national relationship. As it is said, God gathers, gathers individuals to a house. God releases prisoners at suitable moments. So friends, we all have our own acts of kindness we feel most committed to. Maybe you're a part of a Hebra Kedisha that washes a body before burial. Maybe you're a part of, of a, you know, a group that's giving homeless supplies. Maybe you're a Shadchan. Maybe you're a matchmaker who tries to match people up. Um, um, that should not be treated loosely. It's very hard to do loosely. When it's done loosely, people often just throw random people together like, oh, you're a Jew and you're a Jew. You should have coffee. But actually, people are far more complicated <laughs> in terms of their age and their um, attractions and their life needs and their values and the like. So it, it is a very difficult thing. And as we learn here from the Gemara, it is as difficult for God to match people together as it is to, for, to do Kriyat Yamsu, to split the sea. Now, the discussion up to this point so far, as mentioned at the beginning, has been heteronormative. But it seems clear to me, given how central the home and how central families are to Torah life, that we must also affirm homes and families for gay families. It seems equally clear to me that one hiding their sexual orientation and marrying someone they're not attracted to would be forbidden, as it will ultimately lead to suffering for both parties. It also seems clear to me that no one should be condemned to isolation as, as that prevents their actualizing and establishing a family life. They so desire, and this would put them at risk. So the only option left is that everyone who wishes should find a loving partner to build a home with and try to build a family with. In fact, the Talmudic sage Rav Nachman teaches that marriage is only secondarily about procreation and primarily about love and, real, and partnership. It, um, it says here in Yavamot, quoting Rav Nachman, said in the name of Shmuel, that even though a man has many children, he may not remain without a wife. As it says, it is not good that man be alone, as we know from Bereshit. But others say that if he does have children, then he may abstain from procreation, and he may even abstain from taking a wife altogether. And so here we see what is the Jewish purpose of marriage. According to one view in the Talmud, the purpose of marriage is procreation. We want to have children and we need a partner in that. According to the other view, the primary goal is not procreation and family building, but is the relationship itself, the existential fulfillment the intimate fulfillment, um, the many roles that partners can play for each other. So too, one might suggest that the biblical prohibition against gay marriage was against um, the uh, abandonment of procreation. They may have thought one should only pursue a relationship where procreation would be possible, as it would not be possible in a lesbian relationship or in a gay relationship. And so... One should, um, one should find a partner where they can fulfill that. But today, where one can find alternative means, most certainly towards having children, and where one could um, um, fulfill the Talmudic ideal of partnership, um, we would see uh, the, the spirit of this Talmudic teaching fulfilled. One Talmudic teaching shares that one is not missing only a little, but practically everything when they cannot find a partner. Rav Tanhum said in the name of Rav Hanilai, any man who does not have a wife lives without happiness, without blessing and without goodness in the West, in Israel, without Torah and without a protective wall. Rabba Barula said without peace. And so marriage is considered a pathway to the divine. It is considered so crucial to have a partner whenever possible. And for this reason, a marriage is also called a brit, a covenant. Rav Soloveitchik explains this idea in his wonderful work called Family Redeemed. The Rav writes over here, the Bible equated the great historical covenant 
binding the charismatic community to God with the limited private covenant that unites two individuals in matrimony. On the one hand, the great covenant has been compared by the prophet's time and again to the betrothal of Israel to God, right? It's a marriage, l'chadodi, we sing on Friday night as a kind of wedding of Shabbat. On the other hand, the ordinary betrothal of woman to man has been raised to the level of covenantal commitment. Marriage is, as such is called brit, a covenant. Apparently, the Bible thinks that the redeeming power of marriage consists in personalizing the sexual, sexual experience and having two strangers, both endowed with equal dignity and worth, meet. And the objective medium of attaining that meeting is the assumption of covenantal obligations, which are based upon the principle of equality. Hence, we have, to, we have a clue to the understanding of the nature of matrimony. All we have to do is analyze the unique aspect of covenantal commitments and apply them to the matrimonial commitment. And so, too, that's why we see Mount Sinai. We see Har Sinai as a chuppah moment. Uh, under the chuppah, we are standing under, um, under Har Sinai. I say under because of the Talmudic idea of, of uh, the mountain raised above our heads. And we just celebrated Shavuot these last two days, of course. And that holiday is not only a holiday of learning, but a holiday of chuppah, a holiday of a wedding. Okay, so to move towards a conclusion, on the opposite end, we also talk about ourselves as marrying God. The following verse is recited upon wrapping tefillin around one's finger in the morning, similar to how one might put on a wedding ring. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me with righteousness, justice, kindness, and mercy. I will betroth you to me with fidelity, and you shall know God. I sung that to Shoshana um, as I was walking up to the chuppah um, before putting on a ring. And just to hammer that point home a little more clearly, that it is this finger, this left ring finger, where a wedding ring would go, and so, too, tefillin is wrapped around that finger when we recite this line in the morning from Hosea, um, from Hosea um, around um, putting on this tefillin, kind of marrying the divine. There are these radical thinkers, mostly Christian, who chose to be celibate out of their kind of marriage to God. This is not a Jewish idea, although I do know a rabbi who I think was inspired by this idea, um, this idea that we only have space for love for one in our hearts, and that should be reserved for God. Um, but actually, the Jewish idea, as we've explored, is that marriage is a pathway to the divine rather than an inhibitor. But for example, Soren Kierkegaard, the great Christian existentialist, believed that he could not marry out of this kind of uh, marriage to the divine. And so to conclude, we bring joy to those getting married for several reasons. Number one, they matter. We want them to be happy and taken care of at this formative moment in their lives. Number two, we want to emulate the divine and be godlike by bringing joy to those getting married, just as God did with Adam and Eve. Number three, we want to strengthen our community and the world. And by strengthening families, we can help to achieve that goal. And number four, lastly, we understand that the breach between those in love resembles the breach between humanity and God and the Jewish people and God. Strengthening commitment is itself a religious enterprise. Mazel tov to all who enter the covenant of marriage. Mazel tov to all who continue to celebrate that and continued best wishes to those who um, are pursuing relationships um, um, in one form or another. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause here. I would love to open up our conversation about the act of kindness associated with taking care of brides and grooms. Okay, Lauren, let's uh, start with you. I see your hand up. Whoops, sorry about that. Hi. Um, maybe a little bit of a tangent, because, but you did mention Shad Khanim. Um, a real kindness would actually be to help people find each other. It's um, not as bad in Canada, but it's getting there. But I understand the U.S., more than half of all marriages for Jews are with non-Jews. And it's become a, 
it, it, it's, it's actually a, a, a terrible situation right now. We're shrinking and shrinking. And I was shocked. I had my friends from Arizona visiting me, and I was shocked to find out that all three of their kids married out. So maybe the situation is, is far worse there. But really, really, there has to be like a community-wide program to try and help Jewish young people meet other Jewish young people and even, you know, Jewish widows and widowers and divorcees meet each other. So Okay, Lauren, you threw, you threw us right into the hot water here of one of the great debates in the Jewish community. And I, I, I want to say two um, different things here. Thank you for sharing. First, I want to I say as a pluralistic Jewish learning institution that I want to honor um, couples who have chosen an interfaith marriage and that I think that as a Jewish community, we should do all possible to bring those couples closer to Judaism um, in all ways possible. Um, as that has become the norm, studies I have read have shown that outside of orthodoxy, it's about 80% of American Jews are choosing interfaith marriages. And so I want to honor those couples. And I want to say we can do all we can. I know it, um, at VBM and beyond to bring those couples closer. And I also want to affirm um, that as a rabbi who does not perform inter, um, intermarriages, and someone who is also concerned by the trends on a meta level of, of what intermarriage means for the Jewish people, who is both excited by the trends, who sees interfaith couples coming closer to Judaism and where we see a non-Jewish partner who is affirming of their Jewish partner, and as someone who myself grew up in an interfaith um, home and and was just reflecting yesterday um, on this, because actually, and you know, on Shavuot, we read the book of Ruth. Yeah. And I was sharing with my father um, <laughs> yesterday that um, I said, wow, you know, and the, I said, you know, your name is Shlomo Noam, and Noam is named for Naomi, meaning her, she's, a, she's pleasant, right? And, um, and I said, um, one of, you know, one of the beautiful parts of this story is when Ruth says to her mother-in-law, your people are my people and your God is my God and how powerful this is for a model of conversion. And my father reminded me in a way I hadn't, I hadn't remembered that at my bar mitzvah, my Christian mother, um, stood up and, um, and, and I had said in my speech, I was concerned about how my mother felt about my bar mitzvah, and she turned to me in her speech and said, um, your God is my God, um, in a way that I had not remembered, but my father had um, had remembered, and I found very powerful. And so um, I, I just want to both honor what Lauren is sharing around that many in the Jewish communal mm. community hold a position of concern about intermarriage, and we can honor that concern um, while we study those trends, and respect um, rabbis and Jewish institutions that that um, are not willing to perform interfaith marriages out of fidelity to um, Jews marrying Jews, and simultaneously hold on to a respect for those who get intermarried, who are intermarried, and for rabbis who choose to perform as such. Um, yes, Cheryl, and then Eileen, and then Reb Dov. Yeah. Okay, um, I have a couple things. Okay, so I have three children, one married a Jewish woman, one married a man who converted to Judaism, one married a man who is still not Jewish, but they have a Jew, very, very Jewish family. All, all of my six grandchildren are going to Jewish summer camp. They're all in Hebrew school. They're all doing it. So to me, I mean, it, yes, it was an adjustment being a little slightly old fashioned, but uh, we, um, we adapted to it and they're all wonderful matches. They're, the, the, the couples are wonderful, wonderful matches. So they found their Besherets and maybe they weren't the Besherets that we had in mind for them, but it's not our, it wasn't our choice. So um, I think that, you know, we have three families now that are very close to Judaism and doing very similar things in, in their three different circumstances. And the other thing is, the other thing is when you were talking earlier about, uh, you know, the money, uh, you know, the paying for weddings and doing all that kind of things. Um, we were married. Uh, we were both just 21 and still in college. 
And so we had zero. I mean, our parents, we, we never even considered paying for <laughs> paying for anything our, ourselves. So, you know, we were very young because my generation did that. You know, it's uh, for the most part, we got married a whole lot younger than our kids have. But, um, you know, it was still, uh, you know, we never even considered that aspect of it being probably too young to get married, but we did anyway. So, uh, you know, I, I just wondered about that part. And then the other thing that you mentioned was about um, being alone at a wedding. So what if there is no, what, especially during COVID, there were so many couples that got married because they couldn't have a wedding. They would just, they would find a, an officiant and get married. And, and, and while there wasn't a party, you know, it was still no less joyful and meaningful to the couple. So in a lot of ways, they were like Adam and Eve, you know, getting, getting married alone, you know, with somebody watching over them and officiating. So. Well, so Cheryl, just before I, I before we run through your three points, uh, it was your third point around not having an officiant or not having a, a, a large wedding? Not having well, a wedding. the party seemed to be part of what you were talking about, the joy of a party and the mitzvah of bringing joy to the couple and everything like that. But what if there isn't, you know, what if there are circumstances, right. uh, you know, that, that aren't, or if a couple just chooses to, uh, yeah. Yeah. My, I have a nephew that just eloped. I mean, his mother didn't even know that they were, you know, they'd been together for 10 years. They finally, <laughs> they finally got married. And now in the, in the fall, they'll have a party and everything. But still, they just, it was meaningful to them. They're private people. And they did it, you know, they went and got married, you know. Yes. So uh, that's what I'm wondering. I, you know, there's, the mitzvah is from the guest part, I guess, yeah. is what is right. what you're saying. So right. if there right. were no guests, we didn't have that opportunity at that time yes. to show our, yeah. to, to perform a mitzvah of bringing joy. Thank you. Thank you for that, Cheryl. That's a great, that's a great point. And um, I, and I, I, to add, to add another category where this happens is when there's a sick relative, um, all the more so in COVID, but I recently did a backyard wedding. Um, I did a backyard wedding that was um, less than 20 people um, because of the uh, the bride's mother's illness. And they wanted to be sure that she could be um, isolated and they wanted to be sure to get it in in case things were to go even worse. And so that's one of the other reasons we see this happening. And um, because among young people, the, the, the rapidly growing um, disengagement from religion the growing trends of not wanting a religious ceremony at all um, or having a friend officiate um, or Elvis or, you know, whatever the case is. But I just read yesterday that apparently Elvis's family is suing for the overuse of Elvis at weddings. Um, it's unbelievable. What do you hear of next? You know, it's, it's awesome. You know, I, I, it's unclear which relative of Elvis is actually doing that, but <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting point Cheryl makes around like, like, is um, is this obligation mitigated by the fact that we weren't invited to kind of participate? And are we in some ways robbed, right? Is it only the bride and groom's choice? Hey, it's their wedding. It's their personal choice. That's one option. The other choice is, hey, marriage is not just about the couple. It's about a community. It's about the community's embrace of this couple. It's changing the relationship, but not only between the couple, but the couple's relationship to the community and obligation would be too strong, but should a couple embrace community um, in their wedding? And um, just like the question emerged, is, is a community robbed when they're not invited to a funeral? I've heard of cases where a family wanted a private funeral. On the one hand, we may feel, well, that's your personal uh, option. This is, a, this is a very private and intense moment if you want only your family there. On the other hand, I've heard people who felt robbed. This was a close friend of mine, a cousin of mine. I didn't get to participate in Shiva or participate in the funeral, right? Do we have an obligation to invite family and friends and um, community into funerals, into weddings? Um, and then there's the growing trend about bar and bar mitzvahs as opposed to the, you know, 500 person you know, invited to the to the to the synagogue or invited to the party. Those who want just the family to have kind of a private bar and bat mitzvah. These are interesting questions for families and for communities on on what policies might look like. So that's to Cheryl's third point. To Cheryl's second point, 
around expenses, I think that's very real. Um, that's very real. Um, and we have two different issues. We have the issue of, of overly extravagant celebrations that kind of shift the bar and regard Goodbye, to Columbus. <laughs> Goodbye, <again>. Columbus. <laughs> Goodbye, again. Columbus. The Goodbye, Columbus. <laughs> oh, I, 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 that must, is that before my time? I don't know that reference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Philip what Rock. Does that mean? Yeah. Philip Rock. Uh, oh, it's just okay. the Philip most Rock. elaborate you know, over the top wedding. Oh, okay. Well, that should not be before my time because I should have read everything Philip Roth read and now, you, <laughs> now you're learning that I have not. So I feel, I feel bad about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, I did, especially since I had a professor who was like, all of his work was about Philip Roth and I was supposed to have read those books in that course and I, I, I guess I didn't. How did you manage I know as a professor, Aglaia, you're probably, uh, you're probably, you know, shaking your head. so I wasn't always the best, uh, you know, anyways. Um, so, so anyways, but just to, to conclude on Cheryl's first point here, uh, the interfaith relationships, I always cringe when I hear these stories of families that disown, I mean, you thought this was only mid 20th century stories, but still today disown their child because of an interfaith, uh, relationship. I just heard the story yesterday. Actually, it was the opposite way, a Christian parent that disowned their Christian child based upon uh, marrying a Jew. Um, you know, you hear that less. I mean, we, we hear that less than we hear the opposite end of it, um, of, of a disowning. We can understand why someone might choose to do that. We hear this a lot with survivors, uh, survivors who just simply cannot remain in a relationship with their child, you know, after all they went, you know, and yet I, I think we have to do all possible um, to be inclusive with families. And Cheryl reminds us of how wonderful um, a Jewish experience can remain for families um, after finding their Besheret in a way that may not have been the traditional path. Yes, over to you, Eileen. And I do, we do have some comments in the chat, which we'll get to after Eileen and after, I think Rabbi Lerner had his hand up also. So go. Okay. Yeah, I have three points. Great. In my experience, the more money spent on the wedding, the shorter the marriage. Oh, Aglaia likes that. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was number one. Okay. Number two is my son-in-law was not Jewish, uh -huh. but he said to me before he married my daughter and later converted that he was going to have a Jewish household. And I went, great. He did convert. He's very active in the temple with my daughter and he does probably more mitzvot than most people I know. He's just a wonderful person. Um, and yeah, they did have a problem finding a rabbi to marry them, which, um, you know, looking back on it, and I can understand maybe your perspective, but reform rabbis need to be more inclusive, is my opinion. And then third... Um, the mention of widows and widowers dating, I got to tell you, there is a lack of eligible older Jewish men. For every Jewish man I have found, there's a hundred non-Jews. So what are my options, okay, to make the best of what's out there and at my age, I'm not getting married. I'm not going to have children. Religion is not crucial. Good, Eileen. Thank you for sharing those views. And geez, we could spend the whole session on the lack of good Jewish men out there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear this of all ages. I know you were talking about, um, you know, whatever your age group is. But Seniors. Yeah, um, <laughs> right. Um, yeah, seniors. So, um, yeah, but I, I hear this across the, the age groups. I mean, in some worlds, this is not the language I use, but people talk about the shidduch crisis, the shidduch crisis, that there's actually just a ton of uh, Jewish women who can't find uh, far more than far more who can't find uh, Jewish men. Um, and so that is a big problem of all ages. And um, and I'm very engaged with many Jewish seniors who are single and would very much not like to be, um, but struggle for many reasons in this regard. And I it's think that- It's an opportunity for you. Ah, oh, I need another project. All right, I'm taking on this 
All right, Alex, we're adding this to our VPN, uh, adding this to our VPN work, the, the shit up. <laughs> so it is, uh, look, we do try to do this. We do try to do this through Shabbat hosting and the like. Um, I do think that the Shabbat table is a great place for people to casually meet each other. Um, and I do think this is really important. I think this is really important that people who are trying to meet others, uh, that we support that. And of, of all ages and... Um, People have all kinds of challenges for various reasons. Some people have financial barriers. Some people have um, uh, have barriers due to technology because they don't know how to use the apps that everyone's using. Um, people have age barriers, um, you know, uh, uh, political barriers. I mean, literally, I mean, every possible uh, racial barriers. Uh, there's all kinds of barriers that we find. I, I find people experiencing, and I think that this is um, something that we should elevate in our conversation. Um, you know, while honoring people who choose to intermarry, do what we can for Jews to, who want to meet Jews in our community. Um, and like Eileen also said, um, that she, in her case, would not put religion as a top priority. And I think we can honor that as well. There's so many things people want when trying to meet someone. They want physical attraction. They want lifestyle. They want similar values. Uh, they want proximity of where they live. Um, you know, there's maybe a similar financial uh, category so that no one is kind of relying on the other so much. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things some people want. And for someone who Judaism is really important to them and their daily lifestyle, it feels like obviously somebody should make that a priority. But for someone who feels that, you know, um, their values align with a whole bunch of people of different backgrounds and Jewish lifestyle would not be high priority, it would make sense why someone would look for someone, else, especially when they're beyond, you know, having children at that point. So, um, yeah, and Lauren, I see your point here in South Jerusalem. There's many single women in the 30s, 40s, and 50s who just couldn't find a spouse. I hear about this all the time. Uh, women, women especially, especially women who made Aliyah, uh, who made Aliyah in their 20s, idealistically, and, and, and couldn't find someone for various um, various reasons. Um, so, uh, um, yes, Rabbi Lerner, I see you. Then we're going to go to Eric's uh, uh, comment in the chat. Yes. Oh, you're on mute still. Sorry. Well, that was that was half a line. <laughs> okay. I have a series of Henny Youngman one-liners. Deal with whatever strikes you. Fair enough. Uh, as a rabbi who's done hundreds of conversions, I would say eighty percent were for the sake of marriage. I've discovered a lot, and now at the age of eighty, uh, uh, new new relationships. Number one. I prefer the term supportive non-Jewish partner because very often the non-Jew is really not a Christian. They're just not religious and they're not prepared to become Jewish because of their family, their siblings, I mean, et cetera. Okay. Number two is conversion is no longer today in America expected by the family. No one gives a damn in the liberal Jewish community. Primarily because I think, and I'm speaking of a generation after mine, uh, they're cherry-picked their religion. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Pesach, Gamarno. Uh, this is what Shulweis, may he rest in peace, called when a Jew marries a non-Jew, it is a faithless marriage. Neither of them know what the hell they come from and what they are and why they are. And therefore, it's a perfect match. Tradition. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so bold. Uh, let's not forget something which we need today called a gemacht. And in the case of my daughter, because of a whole series of mess-ups, her third bridal gown was from a gemach because everything else was locked down in New York City with a power outage. And later she also gave her other gown to the gemach. If you want to deal with the gemach, I think it's a positive mitzvah that needs to be restored. Great. Uh, and lastly, uh, 
Minion is a great way to encourage people to find singles. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're there. You've lost somebody. But a lot of the people there lost somebody. Yeah. And I have had more than one marriage come out of a Minion. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That, that's interesting. I, I, I have found, folks can tell me if they've experienced it differently, that widows and widowers are sometimes um, more um, attracted to each other in some ways than, uh, than, than a, a widow widower with a divorcee. Um, it's a very different narrative of kind of how their marriage ended. Of course, there's exceptions to that. But it's interesting what Rabbi Lerner is saying is that if someone is saying Kaddish for the year or someone has found a prayer space to be uh, meaningful, that can be a great space. I would love to revive Minion. Not, you know, all, all these rabbis say, don't talk in shul. I say, talk in shul. Yes, uh, you yes. know what? <laughs> what do you go for? Talk to God and talk to, talk to Johnson, talk to Goldberg, you know? And so it'd be a great place for, um, for people to meet each other. Um, you know, I, I know that may seem very, um, outdated. Um, like if someone's in their twenties, like, yeah, my dating scene is going to be minion, you know, <laughs> but, but I think it's a, yeah, kiddish. Exactly. Like Lauren says, kiddish is a, is can a, I, you know, I, I, I know two types of people at kiddish. Those bumping elbows, one, to, get, those bumping elbows to get to the food as fast yeah. as they can. And yeah. those who are actually trying to talk to people, you know? Yes, Rabbi. Uh, I had one more and that yes, is seniors. Yeah. very often are going to have a problem, whether divorcee or widow, with the family from the first family. Their children, their relatives, you, you, there's often a judgment coming through that is uh, a little off-putting to me. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Yes, that that is um, that that's something to unpack also. So just uh, responding to a few of your points, and then we're going to go to Aglaia here. Um, so, yes. um, I, oh, and I see Eileen wrote, a widow, a widower has survived marriage. A divorced person has generally not learned how to be a partner. Okay. A lot to unpack there too. Um, um, so yeah, so I, I like your idea of, of re, um, uh, giving a, a reboot to the Gamach. If folks aren't familiar with the Gamach, the Gamach is a place where, uh, we can donate items where people can, uh, receive items they need. Um, and one could donate a tuxedo or a wedding dress or household goods where people getting started can turn to that gamach. So thank you for that. And I think it'd be cool for every synagogue to have a gamach or the like. Um, yes. And I see Lauren and Eileen are having a friendly mach loket around um, the, you know, the experience of being divorced or being widow, 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 widowers. And, um, and we, we, we respect, uh, of course, uh, friendly debates and you can continue your debate in the chat or live. Okay. And then I agree with Rabbi Lerner around conversion that, that um, in some cases it, it makes sense to um, really push for or be supportive of conversion. In some cases it doesn't. And I think we need a category. I think we need a Jewish category for, the, uh, what did you call it? Supportive non-Jewish partners. Is that what you called it? Yes. And I think it used to be called a Ger Toshav. <laughs> um, uh, yes, a Ger Toshav, right. And so a category, we shouldn't just have a binary of Jew and non-Jew. There's a middle category of people who are a part of the Jewish community, um, and we should embrace them as part of the Jewish community, even if they're not Jewish, right? You're, you're a part of our community, and I think there's a whole host range of people who look like that. Okay, Lauren, we're going to have to meet your ex sometime, uh, or maybe we shouldn't meet the ex sometime, uh, you know, but thanks for... Thanks for bringing us into that. We're, we're on your side, Lauren. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> okay. And then the last point here, this is a case where as a pluralistic organization, we can look at some of the denominational tensions. The reform movement, the ship has sailed. As Eileen shared earlier, the reform movement totally embrace, well, in theory, totally embrace interfaith marriages. Of course, some there's still stigmas in some communities. The rabbis, by and large, are, are mostly performing these um, interfaith marriages. Um, some will do it with a non-Jewish clergy. Some will not. Um, their conservative movement is still um, pulling itself. What, what do you call it? Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever Rabbi Lerner just did. Yeah, there, there's still, um, you know, a, a big tension in that community. The rule still is you're not allowed to perform it or you're kicked out. Um, so some people choose to do it and get kicked out. But that's still the rule. And that debate is continues to be fiery. Every year you, you, you get an op-ed by somebody saying, oh, the reform, conservative movement needs to change. It's time. You know, and in the Orthodox community, it's not even an issue. I mean, yes, there are some fringe Orthodox or 
progressive Orthodox people who are I kind of leave. But by and large, like it's not even a conversation, and it's it's taken for granted that it's one of the you know major problems in the Jewish community today. That of course um, a community should not embrace this. That it's like embracing assimilation. And so I'm, this is one of the great divides of denominations today. There's many things we're aligned on. And if you look at the three denominations where the reform community com almost completely embraces the conservative community as policy rejects, but communally tries to be inclusive and as much as possible, and the Orthodox community that rejects. And um, with some, you know, with some nuances on all of that, we see here kind of an interesting divide. So, uh, yes, Aglaia, let's go over to you. Oh, oh, sorry. Um, I, oh, no, yeah. Sorry. Hold on. Hold on just a second. Let me see. Yes. I, I feel like I talk too much anyway, though, but... No, you don't. Not enough. Okay. So, all right. I can't remember who it was, though, but someone brought up that... Oh, was it Miss Cheryl uh, about um, getting married at 21? Um, I was 21 when I started my PhD program. And, what field? Uh, what field? History. <laughs> and I did it at Tulane, which um, that place is, um, I don't even know what to, how to describe that. It, it, I could tell you stories about that place that are just like, wow. But uh, the result of it, though, was that I never married. So long story short, that was just um, like going to throw in there. Um, I was supportive of my friends who did get married. But what is, you know, like since, you know, there's marriage, there's the family, there's all of that. Those of us who never, <laughs> you know, never married or anything like that, um, besides being supportive, what is our role? Thank you. Thank you. Well, just so I understood the, the final part to the question, you said, what is our role for those who have chosen not to get married? Yeah, for whatever their reasons have not been married. Great. Great. So thank you so much. So um, I, I appreciate that. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, too. Um, mm -hmm. I'll share just a thought or two, and then I'll turn it back to you. I think my first thought is we should ask that person what they want. Some people might say, I'm desperately trying to find someone. Can you help? And we can try to help. Someone might say, I'm not looking to find someone. I've chosen this for various reasons, in which case we need to remove the stigma around, mm -hmm. um, around that tension as opposed to throwing, you know, throwing people at this person when they don't want, they don't want that. Um, how do we make sure that they are treated equally as a full member of the community and not infantilized as not being an adult in some way because they chose not to get married or are not a, are not a parent in some way as we often see happen and 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 assume that they want advice or they want um, they or they want um, they want a matchmaker right so um, those are my first thoughts is to listen to them so but Aglaia I would love to hear from you you know if you what your experience has been and what you would say. It has been a little bit of everything that you said. Infantilization has been the biggest yep. issue, though. And, I mean, it is, um, but in my particular case, though, I, like, I went back and forth. I was not in a good place while I was in grad school. So um, probably a marriage would have been the last thing I needed besides more grad school. So um, I don't know. Uh, when it comes to do I regret it, though, yes. <laughs> yes, that basically is in a word, yes. However, though, um, the infantilization, though, side the, and throwing people in, you know, your direction and everything, though, it is kind of, yeah. So it's, there's definitely, I'm not sure that there's um, an easy answer to the question, though, but it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, where do I fit in all of this? Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for making yourself vulnerable. Um, I hope our learning space can be that and to share, you know, personal regrets, which I, I know we all have. Uh, and this is incredibly challenging. And my experience has been that, in, as I shared earlier, that in many ways, this is more challenging for women than for men in many regards uh, in the Jewish community. And some people, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, may have resonated and for others, it may not have resonated. There's been a whole uh, bunch of op-eds that emerged as Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, announced a week ago she's stepping down or for whatever reason, leaving that position around reactions of what it means women being blocked in the tech industry. And this idea married. that if we, just, if we just work harder, we can have it all. If women just lean into family life and lean into career, that everyone can have it all. And in fact, life is really hard really hard to balance career and balance family. And 
um, in a whole bunch of cases and, and someone pursuing an ambitious PhD at a top university in the country, um, you know, to you know, juggle that alongside. So um, just before we go to Lauren, who has a hand up, I just want to see if anyone else who hasn't spoken wanted to jump in. Um, Gary or Eric or Toby or Francine or Alex or Eddie. Oh, yes, Eric. Uh, thank you, Rabbi. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to just, I can just say out loud the, the question that I posed. Oh, please do that. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that, that was just in case. So I, I, I was going to have an issue be able to communicate this. So uh, here's a question. I've got two questions. We only have time for one. That's fine. Um, in your opinion, what are the best, mod, the best new modern customs being incorporated or applied that have added to the textual understanding of the treatment towards bride and grooms or towards or between each other that you've, that you, you've cited earlier? What do you think are the best new modern customs that, be, that, have, that have added to it, that augmented to the, to the textual understanding? Wow. And, then, and, then the, and then the flip side is that have, what, what are those, the, the new modern customs that have conflicted or challenged that, un, that textual understanding? Wow, wow. I would love to hear folks on this because Eric asks a really interesting question that in most of our meets vote, we're all agitating for progress, right? We're like, we want, to, we want it to be traditional and authentically Jewish, but we also want to see that it's adapting to modern times, right? And we may have different understandings of what that looks like. And Eric's question is like, how has this mitzvah bringing, of supporting and bringing joy to, um, to couples like evolved in, in positive ways? Um, I saw yeah. one. I saw one oh, okay, what's that? Sunday. I saw one Sunday, which I've never seen before. One of the parents, or the couple of the bride are divorced. He has remarried and had children with his wife, and I don't know whether she's Jewish or not. Okay, so that already was a complication in the wedding ceremony. The rabbi, reform rabbi, chose to do the following. And I think it's brilliant and new. He had, for the first cup of wine, each father give to their child the cup from which to drink. And for the second cup of wine, each mother give to the child their cup to drink. It solved a lot of problems, mm -hmm. and I saw it as a very positive step forward. Thank you for sharing that. And Cheryl, thank you for sharing the the circles, the egalitarian nature around circles that some people think about. Um, and Eric, I had the great privilege of doing Eric's wedding. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess you don't do a wedding, but, you know, being a partner and a supporter of his amazing wedding. And they had a great custom where um, where um, uh, they did a string ceremony. Eric, what was the string ceremony called again? Um, so this was... I don't know. This is kind of like a Philippine tradition... I thought it was Catholic, but it turned out it was strictly a cultural Philippine thing, but it was some kind of bonding. It's an old traditional bonding ceremony. I think you've seen in other like Western cultures where there's like you wrap your hand, like the string around your hand, like your mutual hands about the union and bond towards each other and uh, commitment to each other toward, in, in life. So Great. I'm no, losing I love, something. I love that. And, um, oh, and Eddie says in Mexico, they do something similar. That I love that idea of if someone comes from um, a different cultural background, as uh, that we can incorporate some of those things into a Jewish wedding ceremony. And in this case, the from the Philippines, this this string this this string ceremony, which was which was really cool. Um, I'll say two things. I'll say two things because I know we're at time here, and I'm sorry. We, there's so much more to talk about here. One thing I saw in COVID is you know traditionally there's two parts to the wedding that were separated out. And many people said, we wanna get married now, but we also want a big wedding with people later. So we said, great, we have a model for that. Let's do the first part of the Jewish wedding, just you know, three of us in the room, 10 of us in the room. And then after COVID or whatever post COVID means, um, we'll then do your bigger thing. So they could be you know, Jewishly married and then we could still have this second part because historically there were two different stages to how Jews got married. So that, that was one cool kind of cool development of how that kind of reemerged. The other one I would like to see happen in terms of politics is just as we have grown a little bit in um, uh, maternal leave. Is that what it's called? Maternal leave? 
what, what's that, Carol? Maternity. Maternity, maternity. So too, I'd like to see us grow, some places have grown in paternity leave, um, but also we haven't yet given leave for weddings. Um, I, if someone takes a honeymoon for three days after or a week, um, they're going to use up all their vacation days for that. It'd be kind of cool to think about um, how um, legally we thought, just like in the Jewish tradition, the, the couple would not go to war for a year. Maybe a year might be too much. But could there be a week of legal leave after after somebody um, uh, got married? So, too, um, do we think about leave for mourning? Somebody's parent dies. I'm not aware of any federal laws, correct me if I'm wrong, or state laws. That bereavement. War- Sorry? There are bereavement um, allowances. Uh, and and that's, is that a federal or state policy? I don't know. I mean, it's just in our firm policy, but there are bereavement, there are bereavement policies. Bereavement it's policies. not happening in Louisiana anytime soon, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to, I had to throw that out there. <laughs> Aglaia, we will have to compete for um, Arizona and Louisiana of what things aren't happening soon. <laughs> Uh, we'll have that conversation next time. I hope everyone has a wonderful day. And if you choose to join us next week, which I hope you will, then you will get to join us for session number nine of kindness. And session nine is on caring for the widow, caring for the widow. Um, we are still in the relationship stage of kindness. And then we will move to a different unit that moves beyond these relations, these particular relationships. Um, I, I, by the way, I'm, we're doing a book launch tomorrow on Proverbs. We have another, um, is that tomorrow? Yes. We also have a great talk by Rabbi Svi Hirschfeld tomorrow uh, from Pardes in Jerusalem. Hope you'll join us for some of these things. Wishing everyone a beautiful day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.